Here's a few words with Gord Roche of Southwest Fire Academy. Hey, Gord. Hey, how are you? Doing okay, you? Oh, not too bad. Awesome. What else do you have coming up? Well, we have a surface water rescue course coming up in the beginning of July. So that's going to be a lot of fun getting out and doing some rescue scenarios out in Georgian Bay with the boats and things like that. In July as well, we have a rope rescue technician course and an NFPA 1002 driver operator course. So it's going to be a busy July. And again, with the boot camps and the pre-service stuff, we're going to be, be on our toes. The last flashover day went really well. Yeah, and we're finishing up with our volunteer recruit class program. There's two of them should be finishing up in uh, in June and July, which will be nice to get those guys finished up. Some great people coming through in the courses and classes. Yeah, a lot of fun. And we're excited to be moving in, an, I wouldn't say a new direction, but another direction where we're going to be bringing in some really high caliber instructors to form our own internal committee for things like technical rescue. And we're definitely going to be moving forward with some firefighter training that isn't readily available in Ontario. Things like vent enter, isolate search, more force the door with Broussard and his crew, some firefighter survival and RIP programs that we're implementing and putting together. And we're utilizing some really top-notch instructors to sit on a committee to put these programs together for us. Awesome. That's the way to do it. Yeah, I'm excited. It's going to be good. I think it's things that a lot of people have to currently go down to the States for. We're going to be, over the next year, trying to implement some training in Ontario, fill those gaps for firefighters that want to improve their skills and want to learn a little bit more and and you've been up and around with us quite a bit lately. You know the caliber of the guys that we're talking about bringing in. So it's going to be pretty epic, I think. Yeah, there's a lot of skills that you can learn as an individual that don't mess up with the way your department does business, but make you a better firefighter. Right on. And even exposure to other people and their ideas and the, the way that they do things. Some guys with some really good experience. I think it's all tools for the toolbox. Yeah. A lot of departments are starting to come online with the way things are being done now. And if you already have it through SFA, then you kind of hit the ground running with your department. Agreed, yeah. The the target audience for some of the stuff is going to be active firefighters. We want to give those guys and gals that are um, looking just to learn new things, practice skills, be better firefighters. And we're going to try to fill some of that gap that's out there right now. Cool. I'm stoked. Yeah going to be pretty awesome you'll be involved okay awesome <laughs> yeah i'd have a little bit of yeah. fear missing out if i wasn't so i appreciate that <laughs> yeah no 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 it's all good and then just things like high directional courses for ropes and forcible entry and machine rescue and modern fire behavior all of those kinds of things that are just going to put that spin on it and give you some time on the ground and some time with some really great experienced instructors in the canadian fire service
Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode 48 of Multiple Calls. I'm Scott Hewlett. When Jesse Potter spoke at the 7th Annual Woman to Woman Conference in Milwaukee, Wisconsin in 1981, she offered this advice. If you always do what you've always done, you'll always get what you've always gotten. You don't know that you can feel different until you feel different. And the only way to get there is through a leap of faith in trying new things and seeing what happens. Fun fact, you don't know everything about how your body works and what it's capable of. And the ways you might be choosing to make it do what you want or need it to do not only may not be working, but they could be preventing some of the good things you're attempting to do from not working too. My guest this episode is one of a few Wim Hof Method Level 2 instructors in Canada. She dramatically changed her life through the use of mindfulness, breathing practices, and cold immersion. Through listening to her environment, mentors, and her own mind and body, she gained self-awareness, self-love, and self-control, and is venturing to help as many other fellow travelers as she can along the rest of the journey. Are these practices the solution to all your problems? Probably not. But of all the options available to you to shake things up so you can shake things out, they are free, accessible, require no travel, and very little time. Do you have to do one or all of them every day? No. But as Wooderson coined, it'd be a lot cooler if you did. Here's my chat with Marie Bodine. Are you comfortable starting off by telling me a little bit about growing up and your family structure and how that was for you? Well, I grew up in Montreal, which was a little bit different than growing up in Ontario. There's some cultural differences. I was really active when I was younger. I did a lot of running. I did a lot of swimming. spent a lot of time outdoors, ballet lessons for over 10 years. So that was really interesting. I think I really was able to connect to my body pretty easily and enjoy the fact that my body could do a lot of things. But I don't think that my diet was completely great, top-notch. I guess we just ate whatever our parents gave us, but always room for improvement. But I see over time that it seems like they spent more time after I left home eating a lot of those convenience foods and not being active. So over time, I started to see how that changed for them. And I've had a couple of different points in my life where I stopped being active too, and I saw changes really quickly. So I would say the great thing about being active when you're younger, I'm reading about this statistically also, is that people that spend more time being active when they're younger spend more time when they're older understanding the benefits and then actually doing that, putting that into place and having some sort of action structure. Were you always a pretty self-aware, intuitive, reflective child? Definitely, I would say so. There's a drawback to that too, because my brother's a very analytical person. And so my lack of skills to ask factual questions instead of constantly ask people what they're feel, feeling <laughs> it doesn't always work with everybody. So I think a lot of the time thinking back now, how I related to people maybe didn't always give them enough space for them to to relate in the way that maybe felt best for them. And I think this method for sure, like obviously we're going to be talking a little bit about cold and breathing and those kinds of things, but I think I got a lot of skills learning how to listen to more people. And I did spend some time working with the survivor support group through the distress centers of Toronto. And when I was volunteering for them in person, 
I had to learn a lot of listening skills that I never knew existed. And that was very humbling for me. Very, very humbling. The use of words can not only change other people's feelings, but change the chemistry in your blood. I'm a lot more mindful about the words that I think, the words that I write, the words that I speak. Taking responsibility for my thoughts, my feelings, my actions has really been able to ultimately give me a lot more power instead of expecting other people to change and work around my moods. Yeah, and whether anyone's able to frame it in those words or not, we've all experienced it when someone says something to you that you're not expecting and we have a emotion wash over our bodies. That's your body reacting to words, whether or not you've made that connection and you can frame it like you just did. Everyone's experienced it. Right. And the more I kind of study, the more I'm starting to see in many different publications that what we're thinking and, and how we breathe and how we move and what we're eating all create the chemical, I'll call it a printout in our bloodstream. Our bloodstream is just a, a result-based set of data points, really, that reflect what we've been eating, how we've been moving our body how stressed or not stressed we are, how slept or not slept we are. I mean, it's fascinating if you play around with how to look at some of the systems. If we look at blood like a data printout, we can gather a lot of information. And of course, it's much more than that. But for as a diagnostic tool, it really does reflect so much of our behavior. And if we know that, then we can consciously change that if we want to for our benefit. I think the biggest challenge that we're having right now for a lot of people is we don't want to feel feelings because we're too stressed. And the less that we feel things, the more we can get on with certain tasks. But we're not robots, and we have to consider how we feel about things. Otherwise, those feelings will stay in our system until we're ready to deal with them because we're feeling sentient beings. And if we're not able to command how we regulate or re-regulate our emotions, then we're really looking at a long, long life of frustration, illness, imbalance, isolation, separation and feelings of being really lonely and not having meaning or purpose. I know it's a big sentence, like I said, it was a big statement, but I'm seeing more and more that that's really the case. Maybe to tie those two things together, like it's easy for people to understand because it's common knowledge about the blood transporting nutrients and oxygen and removing carbon dioxide. But I think what I'm understanding you're, you're saying is that it's almost like a transmission of information from the stimuli outside your body to the cells and having the body react to the environment in that way. And then I think you're talking about bandwidth even, right? Like how much information can your body take in process properly and properly adjust your body accordingly? Is that fair? Not everything, but obviously there's a lymph system too, but oxygen is transported through the blood and so are happy chemicals and sad chemicals and stress chemicals. And everything that we eat eventually ends up in the bloodstream too, right? So when we're looking at not eating well or not sleeping well and then thinking angry thoughts, which is basically a response, a chemical response, our, our system is really our eyes, our brain our skin, our taste, it not only helps us get from here to there, but it's also an information gathering system. And how we interpret that information ends up being produced in the bloodstream that goes around the body to different muscles and brains. So I like to think that if I stay more present, then I have more of command over those processes. And either we're really just making ourselves stronger or we're wearing our bodies down. We know that for sure. That's why I love sleeping and the concept of having a really great sleep now, especially more than ever, because it's one of the most effective, beautiful regeneration and repair tools that we can 
use. People think it's a supplement or people think it's working out more. That's how we'll get stronger. Actually, we really get strong by, by sleeping. You mentioned how communication might have been a bit of a barrier or a block when you're younger. Was it like that at school too? What was going through school like for you? I found school frustrating. One of the biggest challenges that I, when I'm looking back, when I noticed what my behavior was, I was a very free child and sometimes rules didn't really work for me. And I think a lot of people can identify with wanting to be creative, but then when you're in a school system, it's really follow the leader, do this. There's not enough time to, if you're not understanding something, there's not too much time to figure it out, produce, 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 don't make waves, don't be creative, don't be different. And I think that can have an effect on how people want to express themselves. I'm seeing a lot now too, and maybe you too also, Scott, that people want to be more like another person that they think is popular or well-liked. And as soon as we really start changing how we express, how we see the world and how we see beauty in the world because we think other people have it better than us, we really start to lose not only a beautiful part of ourselves, but a huge aspect of what other people could benefit from. Because the more I'm myself and the more that you're yourself, the more that other people can start to feel comfortable about being themselves also. And when we're not ourselves, when we're taking on a different persona or we're behaving in a way that we think is going to get us more likes, more attention, more money, and we're countering that authentic vibe that we feel like, is this really true for me? Does this behavior really vibe with my true inner feelings are? And then that's when we start having conflicts. But if it's something that's part of our culture, and if it's accepted or celebrated, be like this person, be like that person, we can really easily lose our identity and our sense of self. And again, as soon as that happens, then we're feeling kind of just not happy and we're not sure why. More often than we'll reach to chemicals, the wrong kind of relationships, or just misdirected choices I'm teaching a women's group now, and part of the things that we're doing every week is what is your mission statement or your vision statement for the day? And a lot of people are having trouble identifying who they want to be in the day. And so would you say then that if we're not sure what we stand for, who we are, and how we want to show up in the world, it might be easier then to adopt someone else's idea because we're not really sure who we are and how we want to express ourselves. And it's easier then to start buying your way into acceptance or doing things that actually isn't something that you would want to do because you don't know what it is that you want to do. And then we fall into an authenticity conflict. It's a lot more common to be thinking long-term in the future of who you wish or want to be, and then that leads to anxiousness, and then looking back and feeling bad about who you were, which brought you to where you are, and then being depressed, as opposed to that mindfulness of being in the present moment. That's a really powerful thing to think about, who do I want to be today? Who am I today? And how do I want to interact with people today or in this moment when I'm about to, say, speak to you? Who am I and who do I want to be? How do I want to show up? And you're right, if you haven't thought about that before, then you can feel lost. So maybe then you do grasp for the future or be nostalgic or feel bad about the past. There's a reason why I took on this concept. I created something for myself that worked for myself. There's a very powerful reason. I'll tell you the story. It's Part of it's sad, but part of it's really uplifting because I chose to, to make something positive out of it. So in 2003, I had a friend who went to my high school and she was class valedictorian, gorgeous girl, super friendly, extremely well-liked, 
became a intensive care nurse at one of the hospitals here in Toronto. I guess she was on some anti-anxiety medication. She didn't really feel like she belonged as much as she wanted to. She just felt off. Like, I don't feel like I belong anywhere. I've had some conflicts since I was younger with my dad. I kind of want to leave this job, but I'm not really sure. And something just doesn't feel right. She just didn't really feel right in her own skin. A couple of weeks before I had spoken to her, she had sent me an email. We were going to, we just struck up a conversation, saw her in the street. We spent the, uh, six months having coffees and just talking about different things like medicine and spirituality and health and all those things. And then I got an email one week and she said, I'm not actually feeling so great. I'm not feeling, I'm feeling kind of down. I switched medications and I'm not really, I don't want to meet today. Thinking back, for some reason, I got in my head like I should have called her, but I didn't. I just emailed her and I said, oh, you no problem. We'll meet again next you know, week or whatever. Well, two days later, her boyfriend called and he had mentioned to me that she had taken her life either the next day or the day after that. And he came home and found her in the apartment. The story gets really interesting because I didn't have a ride to go to the home for the service and the viewing. I called up a friend. And I said, I need you to drive me to the East End like right now. I just found out about this thing. This happened, this happened, this happened. Because he must have just, the boyfriend just must have emailed me last minute too because there's so much going on when something so dramatic happens like that. Like, you know, we don't get a lot of notice. So he uh, had a friend who dropped everything, drove me down, which is another thing that we can talk about later, having a circle of people that can be there for you when something immediate needs to be supported. So I had people I could call in. He drove me down. He sat through the whole surface with me, wasn't uncomfortable, just completely held space for me. I was completely just shocked is an understatement. I really had trouble managing that afternoon, just like just keeping it together. I was frightened when I walked into the building. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know where to go. I didn't know her family. And the grandmother found me and she pulled me around the entire room and introduced me to every single member of this girl's family. And the strange thing was, is they said, oh, yeah, you're Marie. She talked about you. This is the Marie that we were kept hearing about. And I just thought, what, what are they talking about? Like, I don't know what they're, what are you saying? And they said, yeah, like, she talked about you all the time. And I said, well, we'd only really kind of got together in the past six months. But apparently what I didn't know was I was leaving a huge positive impact by the little coffee chats that we'd had. And so when I left that funeral service, I made a decision that I never wanted to be someone's bad day because I didn't want to be the cause of maybe the last bad day or the last day that they were going to have on the planet. And I didn't want to be responsible for bringing negativity or conflict to their life, especially if they weren't going to be around. I didn't want to be the cause of diminishing their day. And then I thought, well, what can I do? Who would I have to be? <laughs> Who would I have to be to not be someone's bad day? I would have to be a good listener. I would have to be non-judgmental of myself, other people, people I know, and people I don't know, because I don't want to be a stranger's bad day either. So who do I have to change into? What are my values? What's important to me? What do I think is important to other people for basic respect, love, and regard? What are all the things that I would need to do to make sure that I become that person every day? And it took me almost 18 years to be that person every day consistently, no matter what happened, no matter what someone said to me, no matter what I did, no matter what I perceived happened, 
not having all the information. And I would go home and I would close the door and come in every day. And I, I could guarantee that I was never the cause of ruining someone's day, being their bad day. And it it really took me to an interesting place. I had to make that person's death mean something to me. What I didn't realize is I was going to experience six more suicides of friends, colleagues, coworkers, and other people in my close or, or distant life after that. To have these kind of resilient processes in place saved me a lot of maladaptive responses. Or anguish or misplaced guilt or... Yeah, the guilt is a, is a big thing for a lot of people. Survivor guilt is huge. For some reason, I blamed myself for not picking up the phone like I kind of touched on earlier. You don't know. <laughs> you don't know that these things are going to happen. They just happen. There's nothing. I don't believe now, finally, all these years later, that there was anything that I actually could have done. And maybe that wasn't my role. But can I make this mean something for me so that I can go forward through my life and not have it stick to me and affect the relationships that I have now? Or can it not turn into self-hatred or disgust for other aspects of adult life that we would prefer to look away. But we look at these things and how can it all have meaning? Because Scott, if we keep chasing the high or if we keep trying to find the good parts in life and we don't acknowledge and and still hold value for the sad parts or the difficult parts, then we're going to be missing huge aspects of life that could be massive teaching and transformational moments, uh, which is why I like the cold and the breathing so much because it creates that space for that. But it's been a very interesting journey and it takes work, but the payoff is huge. When we talk about being authentic and who you want to be that day, how you want to show up, but not wanting to be someone different. So let's take that to the extreme. We could say, well, I wish I looked different. We know through just our cultural research and data that people that are deemed to be more attractive do better in life. They have an actual advantage. We're definitely in a culture where there's a lot of people feeling a lot of negativity towards themselves because of the way they look, because there's a, there's a certain standard of beauty that's set out. So someone could think, well, I wish I looked like this person. If you woke up the next day and you looked exactly like that person, I think we would agree that you probably wouldn't be happy because you know through your interactions with people that they're actually not interacting with you. They're interacting with someone completely different and that person that you were is now gone. So it's not actually you, right? That's being presented to the world. So then what's the difference between wanting to be someone different and wanting to change as a person and grow as an individual as who you are and expand in that regard? Well, that's interesting that you've said that. I personally make deliberate points of going out to find people that I admire, that their points of power have nothing to do with how they look. In fact, they struggle with motility, they struggle with speech, they struggle with social norm. They don't fit into any box whatsoever, and they're killing it. They're killing it. They have a massive following. They're doing them. People now are feeling more courageous that they can see other people struggle, 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 and that means that they have a chance to develop the things that matter because when we take away all the beauty and the bank accounts and the titles and the status and the accolades and the awards and the hierarchy, what's left? Anyone that's listening, like what's left in your life? And really the most important things for me is what I carry inside when I go out the door, when I go down the stairs, when I go meet someone, when I sit down. All the things that I carry inside are the only things that matter to me. Can I cultivate those so that I can bring the best of not only who I am, but encourage someone else to do the same? Because I can buy, just like you said, I mean, I can buy anything. 
But there's people that will buy things to feel better, and there's people that will take the time to cultivate feeling better through the things that they earn, the qualities or the or the challenges. And what I find meaningful is overcoming something that I didn't think that I could do socially, emotionally. I faced so many, I don't want to use the word haters because it's slang and it's trendy, but there's many people that don't like what I'm doing. <laughs> We're all, we all know people that don't like us for who we how we present, or who we are, what we stand for, that's fine. But can I hold on to the meaning for me that it's gotten me out of countless situations, how I've cultivated and developed my life? And if something else works for someone else, cool, I might end up learning aspects of those things too. But we're all learning as we go. I didn't get my manual. My Marie manual, I didn't get it. I don't know where it is. So I have to go find it inside myself and make it up and write it as I go along. So for me, what I do in the next hour matters the most. I really couldn't care less what I'm doing 10 years from now. I have no 10-year plan because it's just too abstract for me, and it's not specific enough. What I want to do today, I want to exercise, and I want to sleep at a decent hour, and I want to drink clean, filtered water, and I want to think happy, loving thoughts. And so when you ask someone, where do you see yourself in five years, those points don't usually come up. It's often job-related, and that's fun. But that doesn't actually bring people comfort, really, at the end of the day, a sense of self or confidence, deep, real, authentic confidence. There's times for both. There's times to have all those fun things, but never as a substitute for personal grit or being nice and kind or having patience. If we could sell patience, I think that would be like fly off the shelves. As we walk our way towards what you're doing now, Walk me through the process to discovering wanting to do what you do now. So academically, did you leave high school and go to secondary education? Did you have an idea of what you wanted to do at that time that changed? Maybe what jobs you did along the way and the things that helped shift your perspective? I don't even know if I completely finished high school. I think I had to take extra classes after. So I left everything kind of when I was 18. I moved into a house with a bunch of drug dealers, a whole bunch of miners were all living in this house in the projects. I didn't know what a project was, but there I was. It was very dangerous. And it was no place for a lady just growing up, learning all the aspects of adult life. So that was rough. And I spent at least a year there. My first job, I was waitressing in a strip bar. It was a biker-owned bar. We were just serving drinks. It was dangerous. It was really, really dangerous. I had no clue the situation I was putting myself in. But what I knew is I wasn't happy with these the behavior of most of the people that I spent time with. And I realized, well, I'm not really going anywhere. I don't know what to do, but I don't like this. So every time I made a decision, it was really just to get away from the people that I was spending time with because I don't think I really had great decision-making skills. So I learned that way, way later. But slowly, I would find myself in other situations because I just wanted to exit the situation I was in. So it's not really moving towards anything, but definitely moving away from things. And eventually, I ended up spending more time reading books like how to actually have a have decent conversation to be able to relate to somebody <laughs> instead of being defensive all the time. And the street life will do that. It wasn't safe for us to even laugh at jokes. Showing that you were laughing meant that you were vulnerable and weak. So all these kind of weird things, being a tomboy to compete with boys, to try to not look less strong, to try to compete and to keep up. And it was just thinking back now, all the things that I did 
to try to just keep up with the wrong group of people because I didn't know any better. It took a lot of time. It took me over 30 years to get out of that broken mindset. When I started to spend time with a different crowd, we would be asking questions like, hey, do you do cold showers? What's this? What's this thing that you're doing? Why are all these athletes doing cold? I finally got back into fitness, got a job working in a gym as a personal trainer, parlayed my way without any of the certifications because I was a good motivator, got all my paperwork and my certifications after. But there was many jobs that I had that required degrees, kin degrees, kinesiology degrees that I didn't have. So I don't know. I guess I was just had my own knack in explaining things. And then when I started understanding physiology, I really had to learn everything from the ground up. I had no background. Most of everything I've ever done was self-study and just out of curiosity because I just wasn't really feeling good or happy or I didn't feel like I belonged. So I just thought, well, what else is there for me to learn? What's here? Because I don't like where I am. So I kind of think I want to grow. What are these people doing? They look successful, but what are they really doing? And so how did they get there? How do they behave? Who are their mentors? Over time, I was able to find some other ways of thinking, being, behaving, relating to myself and others that made me feel better. And over time, finding more people that were using a breathing and cold practice because we didn't really learn breathing in the gym. I'm not like this anyway, and it wasn't studied this much. And finally, when I met some people that were practicing the Wim Hof method and other breath practices and other resilient practices, it really started to come back to my gym days. And when I saw the signs, I just thought, oh, this is huge. This is going to be big. This is really going to help people because it helps the blood. It changes how the blood and the brain behaves. So it's interesting that you asked me that question because we're circling back now to how can we change the chemical composition of who we are, our brain, our, our body, our tissue, our blood, so that it actually supports us long-term instead of soothing temporarily or fueling for one purpose or something like that. Um, how can it be more encompassing? And I, I found that to be super useful. I like all kinds of food, but I know that there's certain foods that actually help repair and build my tissue. You can eat for taste or you can eat for wellness, and hopefully they go together. They intersect at some point because we definitely know that some foods that are healthy that don't taste very good. <laughs> not very appealing. But again, that's also an, an adaptation and a choice. So I'm not interested in suffering for no reason. I'd rather have bad things happen for important reasons and intelligently suffer. It's <laughs> a great way to look at it. So what was your first breathwork session like or your first few or your first cold exposure session like? Did you have a lot of stuff in you that released? Was it scary? Did you wonder whether it was for you or was it too much or was it a positive experience from the get-go? I like how you phrase that. So I went to a talk and I didn't know that there was going to be a cold tub there. It was just a talk. A former drug dealer had spent some time in Poland learning this practice with some friends and was kind of showing some people the basics. There was a Vice documentary there. We saw the website WimHoffMethod.com. I didn't realize that there was an actual process and protocol. I thought that was super useful. And then when we did the breathing, it was interesting. But then when we went into the cold water, we just, and it was in a restaurant too. I mean, there was just, it wasn't really set up for a workshop. It was like really just a talk. And so I'm standing in the water thinking like, well, how come I don't feel cold? Like the alarm bells are kind of, I can feel that it's really cold, but why is this not bothering me? I feel like I could stand in this ice water forever. What's, what's that about? Oh, there's a method. Oh, there's this website and oh, there's a video course and there's a structure and a protocol and 
And as I mentioned, I mean, it was just all confusing to me in the beginning. I just didn't, I couldn't make any sense of it. So I started reading a little bit more and I'm telling you, it was a long, long process to becoming experienced with my own system and being able to read my own system. So now, four or five years later with this practice, I can stand in cold water and feel my body heating up on its own now, or I can put my hands in ice water for a long time and not have that response of this is extreme pain, or I don't want to be here, or I'd rather be, I don't know, eating cake, or I'd rather just do something else. But now I can actually work with my system and know that I'm not only calming my mind, I'm tempering my mood. I'm allowing more patience and understanding and self-compassion in for myself, but for other people. Because if I can breathe through a stressful moment, I'll know that they'll always move through, whether someone else is bringing that stressful moment or I'm actually creating that for myself. And so it gives great pause for me to be able to spend time in a stressful moment and know that it's going to blow through me. It's not going to be permanent. And that there could be a great opportunity for learning there. Massive, massive reconsideration about how we label something. Because everything is neutral. Every thought, every object, every event is all neutral until we call it something and put a label on it. So I've had an incredible opportunity to rethink what I want to name something happy, sad, stressful, wasteful, fearful, and I don't want to spend most of my life in the future because the future is not really where my life is actually happening. It's happening right now. Like your heart doesn't think about tomorrow and your liver doesn't care about next week. It's not really in the consciousness of that organ. The organ is very present. And I think some of the parts of the thinking mind are very future focused and Although that could be useful for some things, it's definitely not a great place to stay. It hasn't helped me. And I think being here in the now is much more fun. When I want to create my day, my day is going to automatically create my future because that's what happened six months ago. All the things that I did six months ago make up my life right now. Yeah, I'm sure most of us have read or heard that you can't choose what happens to you, but you can choose how you respond. And that sentence, like many, many sentences, they're easy to read and maybe intellectually understand what it means, but to integrate it and to live it, to experience it is different, right? A lot of these things that we read, quotes, advice, they're one thing to understand. There's another thing to experience and integrate it. I've said before, speaking about mental health and say anxiety and depression, that you don't know you can feel different until you feel different. Once you experience a feeling, everything lights up and you're like, oh, (laughs) there's a different reality than what I've been living. And then once you feel it, I think that for me has always been the tipping point where now you have a new benchmark, a new framework that you can try and then be motivated to or inspired to do other things to experience that more often and then hopefully that becomes your new reality i guess my question to you or conversation point is do you feel like breath work and cold exposure and the process that those two combined what goes into that that gives people a very quick connection to what you're experiencing before it happens what you're experiencing during doing something physical putting thoughtful effort into something and then experiencing a new reality very quickly. Like there's a, there's a high, very quick return on investment as opposed to say cognitive behavioral therapy, which may take years to feel a difference. And or maybe those differences may be fleeting. Do you feel it's the key with breath work and the cold is it's very powerful, very quick 
And that's what shifts people's perspective and intent. It can. And I think that there's a time and a place for all of these things. Everything has its own process. And there's some people that may never want to or ever engage in these kinds of breath patterns or cold water. And so however you find your calm and how much you want to learn to love yourself and how much you want to feel feelings is a process in itself. Because I don't really think that it's going to be all that easy to talk away an emotional problem. I've seen it not work many, many times, but I can feel away a sadness because if I'm feeling sad, that can move through. I think the problem where a lot of people get stuck is they want to stop the feelings and therefore they're just going to continue to hang around until they get dealt with. You probably heard a lot of people say that before in another platform. It's like, if, if we're really not addressing these emotional issues, they're not going to really dissolve by themselves. We can Humans are very good at burying this stuff. And a lot of people, like I also mentioned, even myself when I was younger, feeling emotions or expressing emotions was perceived as being weak. But it's actually the opposite. Stronger people feel fully intact while they express these emotions and have these emotions move through them. So now instead of me saying I'm sad, I'll say sadness moves through me. I don't use sadness as an identity. I feel anger, but I'm not angry. That's not an identity. And it's hard because there's a lot of people that don't have social circles where they can express themselves and have that acceptance. And the more that we hide from these feelings, the more they just sort of hang out until they get expressed and moved. They're going to stick around. Huge, huge learning moments. And everyone's equal in an ice bath. It doesn't matter how much money you have or your bank account or the ice doesn't care. It really does affect everyone the same. It's a huge opportunity to get connected with something that you have less control over. We can all muscle through cold water, but to actually let it take us someplace and let us feel something, and let us have something come to us instead of us going to something else, like counting. Counting has its place, but again, a lot of people with this practice, they count their holds, they count their immersion times, and they start using it as a competition. And as soon as I stopped using my oximeter, and as soon as I stopped counting my breaths and counting my holds, a whole different facet of this practice appeared in front of me that I never would have been able to experience, understand, develop if I hadn't have stopped counting. Your brain changes when you're not really using those processes. A lot of these things that we experience when we're breathing works a lot like the dream state, except we're awake. Our, our brain frequency changes. We're using different parts of the brain we're having up to, or even more sometimes, depending on, I guess, the studies that you're reading, up to five times more oxygen is going through your body, and that's going to change you. So it can be very dramatic and big for a lot of people. A lot of people have releases. It can get very emotional. The air can just knock things loose out of your body. It's important to have a community that you can rely on and lean on, and that's why group sessions are really fun, and everyone's supported in these, in these moments. And I just think that if people want to face their feelings, there's a huge, huge opportunity for power there. And the more we talk about it, the less it's going to be in this culture, hopefully looked down upon because I'm not seeing value in keeping secrets. That's how I was brought up. We don't talk about these things. We don't talk about money. We don't talk about being weak. Everything had to look a certain way. And I didn't find that to be, it just didn't resonate with me. And then I look back now, 40 or 50 years later at the results of that behavior, I don't want that life. 
I don't want that life at all. These people, the people that I'm seeing, they're sick, they're miserable, they're fearful, they're paranoid, they're unhappy, they don't have joy. It's like, uh, okay, so I understand that you wanted me to be a productive member of society, but that's just not the life that I want to have. Everything that you've done, I don't, I don't want that. I want to find my own way, and I don't want to keep hiding and lying about my life or pretending it's good when it isn't. I want to be free. I want to be free of all that. I'd rather be judged for not being perfect than be feeling shame because I'm just actually hiding what's not working. So is the main thing that people are dismissing or avoiding fear, the not wanting to admit there are emotions or show emotions, express them, it all boils down to just being afraid. So the idea that emotions are weakness, you're actually afraid that you're living in weakness in fear because you don't feel like you're strong enough to face them properly, that you won't survive or that you'll be judged because of it. So it all really cycles around fear. Is that what we're doing with the breathwork and the cold is we're actually releasing or allowing or accepting facing fear? It's not even the fear of the cold or fear of, or it might be fear of losing control. Maybe to speak to that. I know that maybe wasn't properly phrased, but I'm sure you get the idea. Maybe A couple of years ago, I would have talked more about fear, but I won't today and for a couple of reasons. When I read books that are written by people like Lynn McTaggart or Greg Braden or Bruce Lipton and a few other people that are thought leaders in their own communities in their own right, I'm starting to see now that it's really separation is the the big challenge that we're all having. It's not fear. We're feeling separate. We're feeling separate from our own bodies. We don't know how our bodies work. We don't know what happens when food goes in and comes out. Most people don't even actually know what happens. Basic things. Some people don't know what happens when we're sleeping or when we drink water or when we exercise or how the heart works. When we're feeling separate, it invites a whole bunch of other questions that really can't be answered fully because there's too much mystery. If we feel like we're a part of everything, including our own self, then we're not going to be running away from ourselves. We want to get to know ourselves better feeling connected to our bodies, feeling connected to the earth that we walk on, feeling connected to the air that's swirling around the entire planet that we breathe in through our lungs that goes into our blood, feeling like we can connect to the food that we're eating, the sun that charges our skin and rejuvenates us, super, super important. All those things, wind, all those things. Even not even looking at other people, when we're feeling connected to the basics like the earth and the water and our bodies, then we have an opportunity to be much more welcoming of everything. I think that's the basis. We can still be afraid, but still feel like we belong. Well, Johan Hari speaks poignantly about the cause of addiction is disconnection, not being connected or feeling connected to having something to wake up for or live for. That definitely aligns with exactly what you're what you're saying there. I would say if someone's looking for a state change, then that would definitely be something that people would be drawn to. Not if it's a it could be a drug, it could be a food, it could be overuse or misuse of these elements. Exercise, hot, cold. I mean, anything done to extreme without balance can be detrimental to the system. When we look at chemicals, often we're looking to soothe or we're looking to shut off or even for a lot of people feel better. I'm not an expert on that. I'm only an expert on on my body and my feelings. And I've seen a lot of miserable people over the years try to put Band-Aids with many, many different things, even healthy things, overdone. The body always wants to go back to balance. 
And I think as we grow and evolve as humans, I mean, whatever that means is different for other people. I think it's my responsibility as a person not to have anyone else fix my challenges. That's really up for me to discover. And how artfully I can do that can become a representation of other people taking those little mini risks every day and developing who they are so they're not sold back their happiness or their inherent health. I think there's a lot of money being spent on things that don't need to be spent on based on the fact that we can cultivate these things for ourselves. So when I think of something like breathing in cold water, or when I go on the Wim Hof Method website, I can take a free three-day course. I can look at these things and say, well, I can use air and water is pretty inexpensive to access for most people. It can help me sleep better. It can help me digest. It can help me calm down. It can help my rejuvenate my immune systems. It can help regulate my adrenal system. That's a huge one. All these things it can do, and probably 20 more things. I can't think of them right now, but there's just so many, and it doesn't really cost a lot, and that's kind of fun to know. It's fun to know that I can make some happiness anywhere I go. And I can breathe better through diaphragmatic breathing as opposed to shoulder and collarbone breathing, which is a signal that something's not going right in the body. Again, the body's going to be reading signals that we're giving it. And dysregulated breathing causes a lot of illness. The body will read that as a signal that things aren't okay if we're breathing from the collarbone and the shoulders a lot. And babies don't do that. If we go back to kind of baby-like breathing, full body breathing, diaphragmatic-based breathing, not a lot of repetitive breaths all the time, more calm breathing and meditation will get you there pretty quickly through practice, then I think that's going to solve a lot more problems and people won't be buying their way into happiness as, as much. Yeah, it's interesting how we understand that, say, take oxygen, for example, that our body is a system and it operates within limits, right? If we slowly decrease the amount of oxygen in the space you're in, you'll pass out. And if we keep decreasing it, eventually you'll die. We, everyone understands that. I guess most of us can't translate that to all the other limits that we operate within. And there's a lot of talk about pushing the limits or pushing your boundaries or being superhuman or, I mean, we definitely see Wim Hof doing this, right? Pushing what is possible for the human body, but we all still operate no matter who you are within specific limits. And you talked about homeostasis and I think homeostasis isn't just a static line. It's a spectrum within those limits, that upper and lower, whatever you want to speak to that sits in that space. Yeah, I think it's really powerful what you're talking about, people just basically not understanding the meat machine that they, that they live in <laughs> and how they can, I mean, obviously there's mental and spiritual aspects of that that we can use to adjust in our physical being too. But even if you want to start with hacking the system for your benefit, you really can with understanding what the upper and lower limits are and in a healthier way playing with that and gaining benefit from it. I hear people say like, isn't there more to life? And I'm thinking, well, maybe there should be less to life, less stress, less arguing, less overachievement. I mean, more, more, more is where is this more, more, more getting us? Where is it getting the planet? You've raised some pretty, pretty interesting points too. And when I hear Wim talk, he mentioned a lot about those 26 world records that he broke, he did it to get the attention of the medical system so that they could do tests on his blood. So he could confirm everything that he was believing when he was practicing on his own in secrecy for all those years, years and years and years, because he just knew that this was doing something positive. But he needed the universities to do those tests. Interestingly enough, all the, I'll use the word stunts, but they're 
tests or whatever, you know, world record, whatever it is that you want to consider calling them. He did it because he wanted to raise awareness. The interesting thing from what I remember when he did the first world record, I think it was an hour and 56 minutes in ice water. He was so broke, he didn't have money to practice with real ice. He had to imagine it. So wait a second. So what he's saying is he broke a world record for staying an hour and 56 minutes in ice, but didn't have ice to practice from May to September. What? (laughs) Through visualization. Yeah. I thought, okay, so it's fantastic enough that this world record was actually broken, but if you're even doing it with just mind training, then, wow, I really want to know more. When I heard that story, I just, uh, I got to sit down. This is just, this is so out there. I don't even know how to categorize that. So when we're looking at the body, we want to, we constantly talk about achieving. This is a a question that's coming from the thinking brain. But when we look at a a question like that, which is going to be kind of weird for some people to even wrap their head around, like, what does your heart want? Or what does your fascia want? Or your, what does your cerebral spinal fluid want? Does it want more? Or is it really just our ego mind that wants more all the time? How do we really know what's really best for us? Well, if we can't feel and we don't have that intuition, we don't have that deep, intimate relationship with our bodies, then it would be difficult to know what's too much unless there's an injury or we just get over-fatigued. And we know that stress is really anything that's just not homeostasis. Running is stress. Hypoxic holds are stress. Saunas are stress. Cold water is stress. Eating too much is stressful. The body always wants to come back to balance, but the body's always more intelligent than our thinking rational mind. Always, always more intelligent. Our body always knows what we need, and you and I know, and we've seen it before. We're always wanting to push the limits and get in the way, but that's not always what we're looking for. Short bouts of stress to get stronger is fantastic. There's no person that can live with the low-grade stress that we're actually putting ourselves through day in and day out. That's why meditation for me is so valuable. That's why self-love is so valuable. And, and short challenges, I don't want to be afraid of the cold anymore. I don't want to die regretting all these things that I didn't try and, and just shrinking because I couldn't do what someone else was doing. Like I really just want to know who I am the most, and and I'm not going to get there by copying other people. I really want to know who Marie is, and that's changing year after year, but I also want to bring my best, and for me, that's just loving myself and not being an asshole to somebody. When I come home, I just want to feel like I did right by myself. I did right as best as I could by strangers, by the people that I have to be accountable for, the planet, the animals. Like I really just want that deep relationship. For now, That for me, that feels good. And when we have other things like stuff, that's to me, that's just cherry on top. It's just an, a beautiful, beautiful bonus. But it would never be the foundation. I don't think it's, it would ever sustain someone on a deep, deep happiness level permanently. It really says a lot about our culture that the only way we'll listen to someone speak to us about something that's very simple is if they do something very extreme. They have to go to the far end of the spectrum before we'll pay attention because I guess it's just not entertaining. It's just not, there's so much stimuli that you need to do something on the absolute end of the spectrum. David Goggins would be another example, right? He has to go to that absolute limit of almost dying over and over again to for us to listen to what he says that is actually very simple. Two people that were dissatisfied with what was going on in their lives felt like they had to do something so extreme that they could scratch the grooves of their own record to be something more that suited them because they were so fed up with 
what they saw going on, they said, I I need to do something so different that I also need to do this for me. It's really, really hard, Scott, to do something so extreme for someone else over and over and over again. I I think even Lewis Howes talked about it. He was a football star for years and realized he just wanted approval. He did all these things because he wanted the approval of a family member. And I just thought, wow, how many people are doing things because they think it's something they should do or they'll get the love of their parent or something like that when they really could connect and say, hey, I'm not feeling this. It's when we get so swayed by judgment and people that we love, again, not standing in our own power and not being able to shoulder other people's disappointment. As I said before, I mean, I'm, not, I'm okay with disappointing people as long as I'm honest and I'm, I'm trying to do it with some love and understanding. And what do they really want? If they're disappointed in me, does that mean that they're actually, it's me that they're disappointed in? Or am I reflecting something about them that they didn't get to do? When did you choose to become an instructor and what was that process like? It was fun and really not fun at the same time. (laughs) We got certified in 2019. There's a lot of science that's required for us to continue sharing what we know. And it's a kind of cool question because a lot of people say, well, what did you have to do? Well, I had to practice. I can't really read a book about ice water and get great at it. I have to be in ice water and I have to learn how to listen to my system and also understand what's generally safe and what's less safe. The body has many different parameters. The more I study, the more fascinated I am with how the body can adapt and how we can just love ourselves more deeply. I look at this practice really as a, I joke, I call it cold water, a gateway drug, but it's just taken so many people to so many beautiful places and the breathing I had no idea was going to give me such a sense of peace and calm and help me get out of my head and more connected to my body. Any kind of breathing people is just going to help people. It's just going to help. We're just not, we're sitting all the time. We're not breathing from generally the right places. We're breathing too much. We're, we're stressed. It's, it's not helpful. It's, it's not great for long-term health. We've got to move our body and, and get a little bit of extreme and love ourselves no, no matter what that looks like. We're all growing and changing. And I think it's, this practice has really helped me learn how to be more accepting of myself and other people at the same time. It's allowed me to listen to so many people share so much pain and disappointment and frustration and anger that we're all trying to work through. And to, We're so much more the same than we are different. We're so much more the same. We all want a roof over our heads. We all want to sleep soundly. We all want to eat great food. We all want to feel important and loved. We all want to get laid. We all just want to be connected. The cold has really helped me learn more deeply what that could be. It's helped my listening skills. It's just really helped my patience and my deep, deep respect for every person on the planet trying to find their own way. And I think if people judged people less, we would have more room for us to just explore those nuances of how we show up, how we express life, because it's fun. It's fun to witness the struggle, and it's fun to witness people looking to try to feel better. There's just many, many ways to do it. Breathing and cold is one of them, and it's beautiful and it's powerful, but there's many other ways too, and I think it's all valuable. It's all important. Does that answer your question? Sure it does, yeah. What short-term and maybe long-term transformations have you witnessed that really stand out to you that have that just keep resonating over and over or you look back on and you still can't believe? Personally, for me, 
when something super quantifiable and super bad happens, I just don't have that same response anymore, like that big emergency or the, I go into story or I try to pre-manage the future. Something as simple as I've completely lost my bag or my wallet. Oh, well, I guess I'll just make a few phone calls and get that solved. I just don't go into panic mode anymore. It was weird. And the more I meditated, the deeper that calm happened. And it happened by itself. It was kind of strange. And I didn't expect to be so calm when something went so wrong or something that I would have responded to completely differently in the past when I behaved a certain way. I'm like, how come I'm not feeling upset? That's really, it doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel right <laughs> that I'm not upset about something. And so then I said, well, what's that about? Let me explore. I wonder if it's because I'm doing all these practices. And, and then I realized I have so much more control over how I behave and how I perceive things. And when I start using those practices to stay calm, other people stay calm too. The electromagnetic field changes because we're still not talking too much about electricity and health in the medicine world. I would love to see more studies be done on how electricity gets the body strong or re-regulates the system. We use it for heart rate monitors, but the body really is an electrical system. And I'm really starting to get interested now more because of this practice on how the electrical systems of the body works. There's electrical charge in our blood, our heart beats because of electricity. I find it incredibly fascinating. So that's one thing that I didn't expect that I'd be curious about the human system and electricity, but just the radical calm and the non-judgment or the less of judgment of myself and others. It was completely unexpected. I never really liked the cold at all. When I became an adult, I just thought everything kind of sucked about it. And now I'm a lot more respectful and understanding and I can appreciate it a lot more. I don't say I love it, but I can say for sure that I'm really liking what I'm learning about myself through that practice. I'm really liking who I'm becoming and I can see that other people are saying the same thing too. Again, even circling back to when my first friend passed away, the goal of not wanting to cause more problems or to cause more friction for myself and other people, it started a while ago, but this process and this practice really galvanized it very quickly, much faster, as you suggested also, than traditional therapy for me and for a lot of other people, although everything has its place in its own time. For me, I mean, I did all that and I never got as far as spending some other time with other people and this practice as well. It's been wild. It's really, and I don't have a specific practice that I use religiously every day. For me, every day is different. Sometimes I'll do hand training, foot training, maybe face training. I'll practice at different temperatures. Sometimes I'll leave it all together for a little while. If I'm tired, I'll just focus on breathing, thinking positive, loving thoughts, just standing for respect. Part of what I wanted to ask you was how this type of self-care, how these ventures can be even more crucial for first responders. And I think you answered quite a bit of that. I mean, I'd, I'd love to hear you speak more specifically to it, but I mean, obviously with the lower we can keep our heart rate, the calmer we can be, the more under control our breathing can be. Not only do we think clearer, make better decisions, take more of the world in, less tunnel vision. As a firefighter specifically, being on air and in a limited amount of air to get into somewhere where you can't breathe without it and be able to do work very hard work and get out either yourself or with your crew and or with someone else that you went in there to find. I can't see what would be more important than 
understanding your body and gaining more bandwidth through calm. And I think many people think, well, I mean, obviously physical exercise is crucial. The sleep is crucial too, but I would say many first responders want to take the route of, well, as long as my cardio is good and I get my resting heart rate down and I'm very strong, then I'm good. Then I'm fully capable and prepared. And I think maybe that missing piece is the mental aspect and perhaps these self-care practices or routines are a way to get even more value out of the other things that they're already doing. How interesting, too, the comments about the mechanics of the processes of the system. And we're still not accessing that perception and how that instantly changed the blood chemistry, too. I've had many, many first responders show up at my workshops. And the one thing that keeps coming up is, I can't manage my life. I'm using substances to manage everything. I can't talk to anyone about it. I can't talk to my coworkers about it because we can't let anyone know that we're not okay. We have to be the strongest. Being weak is bad. And I'm listening going, wow, like, it's, you sound trapped. You sound like you don't have a system that can support a certain kind of challenge that's outside of a, just a mechanical or physical challenge. We're only talking about the people that you're serving when you're helping at work. You're talking about maybe their mental state too, right? Because we all, is that not an assessment part of when you're assisting someone on a call is assessing their mental state? Yeah, it should be a deeper portion of it. And there may be some misunderstanding of it, but currently it is, it is a piece of the puzzle. I just don't think it's given its full due. So maybe it's addressed in emergencies. But the thing is, too, I'm just hearing it too many times from people in that sector, the people that help other people always perceive that they need to be the strongest. Sometimes I talk about something like a sword. Sometimes I look at my body or my life as a sword. So a sword has to be strong. It has to be flexible. It has to have balance. It has to have sharpness. And a mind also needs to be flexible strong, have balance and have sharpness to be a good tool. And so when we ignore one aspect, it will wait. And I'm just hearing it too often. I hear a lot of people talk about, I can't talk about these things because of perceived weakness. And so I, I really think that I don't have the answer because I'm not in that system, but I do know that the answer isn't to continue to push it aside. As you know, the culture has, has changed dramatically on how we, we look at mind training and, and behavior. And I think really because we're so many people are having challenges now, we, we must talk about it. When we're doing this practice, sure, we're working our cardiovascular system, but we're also recalibrating the adrenals. So the system will just start to run better. But we must sleep and we must give our mind quiet and, and really give it a break. It's just grinding, grinding away too much. And if people can even adopt something as simple as a journal or connecting with nature and getting out of their heads and thinking that they can overcome everything by muscling through, there's a whole beautiful aspect of who they are that they can connect with and eventually things with loving regard can start to work through on their own. And remember, I'm not talking about all answers and I'm not talking about all mental health, but I think just the shame part really has to be addressed. It really has to, this can't sustain itself because it's just, it's permeating all aspects of society. And we know now people are taking more pills than ever. They're distracting more. We need everyone on this earth. We need people that have that skill to help. I really just want people to know that there are other options. If there's someone that has an addiction, 
they can still practice mindfulness and breathing exercises and feel better. Uh, there's uh, been many stories, many of my fellow instructors have talked about former addicts feeling so much better when they practice these techniques. Even box breathing, it just helps recalibrate the electromagnetic resonance of the heart and the brain through the vagus nerve. I love that we have science now about these things. I love that we can study and show it in, in graphs because we can demonstrate that it works through these printouts and these readouts, but really self-love is really, when it comes right down to it, a beautiful place to start. Even could you consider the possibility of loving yourself today, even if you can't love yourself today, could you be open to the possibility? And I think that's a beautiful, beautiful place to start. Like I said, I love this practice. I love everything it brings, but I, I don't find any power in muscling through and shame and hiding, and it's never going to work long-term. So for the people that are still struggling, continue to practice with what you're using and then try this. And eventually the body will start to prefer one over the other. I'll never tell someone to stop doing what they're doing. I'll say, try adding this a little bit. See how this feels for you. See if it helps you feel a little bit better. The body requires a very, very small amount of, of this practice to feel good. I would also use the concept of minimum effective dose, as you might have probably heard that in other parts of wellness. I mean, we have a very small amount of dose of cold or dose of vitamins movement. I mean, the body requires not a lot to really make big changes on its own. So when we give the body a more regulated breath pattern or we give it some space, mindfulness, because it can't get it all done at night, which is why meditation is so great in the day because it changes our brain, our brain function for the better. And then when we get into maybe some cold water, some exercise, it doesn't take a lot. We don't really need to push it that hard. There are minimum effective doses. And I think it's a beautiful concept. I'm starting to explore that more with the minimum effective dose for cold or, hey, like, can we track how much we love ourselves? Is there an app for that? Because I would kind of like to see someone come up with an app to love themselves more. Isn't that kind of what we want at the end of the day anyway, to be happy? All of it. There's definitely a culture of keep grinding, muscle through it, like you said, go hard, keep hustling, the rent is due. There is value with, like you mentioned grit early on when we started talking, and there is value to that and living in that state when it's applicable. But there's definitely a misunderstanding with the balance that I think there is, and it's maybe fear-based or just misunderstanding that if you rest if you allow yourself to fully rest and recover, that you'll lose that edge, that it's wasted time, that you won't be able to go as hard, where it's actually the opposite, right? The more you balance things out and give your body that love and rest and recovery, the more you'll get out of the other end of the spectrum. I know you've had people speaking on your show about sleep, and when I listened to it, I was like, oh, snap. Wow, I really learned a lot of things on sleep that I didn't even know. Just the science is coming out more and more, and it all really comes down to ego and I'm too cool to sleep. I'm too cool to show my feelings. I'm too cool to rest. I'm too cool to love strangers. I'm too cool to really express my weaknesses. And it all comes back to separation for me. That's what I'm perceiving. The more we separate ourselves, uh, the less fun we're going to have and the harder it's going to be in the end, the struggle, the struggle, the struggle. And again, there's enough pain in the world that happens without us actively creating it. And it's all meant for learning. I said before, I mean, I would love to suffer more intelligently in my life. There's so many things that I did in my life. I made it so much worse 
because I either ignored things or I just put more gasoline on it. Like, oh, well, this is wrecked. Well, let me just wreck it even more. I know I'm going to go through hard times. I want it to mean something. And so I'd rather just have really beautiful lessons that are difficult than just a whole life full of nonsense and drama, expecting other people to change to accommodate me when I'm the person that can really grow and evolve and bring something beautiful. It just takes a little bit more work, but hey, we're working anyway, so. (laughs) Choose your work. Yeah, I mean, if we all like to work so hard, let's work at loving ourselves a little bit more. Let's work. Hey, I I challenge anyone to send me a, a, a post and tag me. I had the best sleep ever. I slept so hard. (laughs) I'm like, I'm crushing it at sleeping. (laughs) That's right. Two more things I think I want to cover before I let you go. You said something poignantly that's resonating with me a lot. I thought about it in my perception of cold. You said cold is just a sensation. Maybe you can expand on that and how that mindset matters when it comes to this kind of personal work. I like to choose my own words sometimes when I'm facilitating or demonstrating these practices. So often I say, well, cold cold is a loud feeling. I don't even use the word uncomfortable because some people love the cold. To me, it's just a loud feeling and it's just a feeling that can bring me some pretty cool insight. So can I look at this with some curiosity and can I find a way to connect with my breathing so that I can command my power I don't like using the word control too much either, but can I command my power? Can I command my body? Can I work with it as a best friend and a deep, deep partner that's completely interested in my best, my health, my interest? And can I invite more happiness, more calm? And can I use these little stressful moments as points of learning? And so when I talk about cold, I usually say, yeah, sure, it's a sensation. It's a loud feeling. And I think people can appreciate that too, because I'm not trying to really label it as a good or a bad thing. It's just a thing. I don't want to push my thing onto your story. I want you to tell me what you experience. I think that's the coolest part when I listen to people talk about their experience. They say things they never would have thought of before. Oh, wow, you went here, or it brought you back to this one time when your life was this way, and now it's this way, and you had a reflection, or you went right back to a childhood moment or now this is helping you connect another fear that would seemingly be unrelated, but now it's showing up in your field. Wow. Really interesting. Mad respect, mad respect for, for going there to see what's, what's possible. So I love the practice because it generally brings people right into the present moment. It really can't be ignored. You can't really be doing anything else because most of the time you're in water Or even if you're outside, I mean, you're bracing yourself with something that's a big feeling. Let's attach some joy and some love to that because you can still do that if you want to. Like, think about it this way. People suffer through tattoos because they know what's coming on the other side. It's really just the story that we tell ourselves. With the pun intended, how can people dip their toes in this world and discover what it can do for them in their life? How do they start? There's so many things that people can access for free. There is a Wim Hof Method YouTube page that has over a million subscribers now. There's a lot of lovely science. I like to Google Wim Hof and science animation or animation on that page. There's so many fun animations that describe the science because sometimes science can be a little bit much for people. It can be a little bit confusing. I like to still go back to those 
videos. I'm always gathering something new. Five years in, I'm still looking at this practice as a brand new practice for me. So I would start there. There's also an app. The app pays for a lot of the science research also that we do or that the Academy does to bring us more information. And of course, the website, WimHoffMethod.com. People can also find my name there, Marie Bodine. I have an instructor page and usually there's things that are listed there for people that are living close to me. But of course, people can find me anytime. If you have a question, hit me up, send me a message. I'll be happy to flip over a a link that will give you some more information. But there's so many articles now on breathing in cold. What I would like to stress for people is to look at the science too, because when people write articles, they're generally taking all the science that's already out there and then just interpreting it and writing. So the science that I read, the same science that fashion magazines read, but also science publications and medical websites, we all read the same science. And I think how it's interpreted is different and how people write about it is different. Go to the source as close as you can, find out more about the studies, but also just have fun with the practice and Don't think about it really as a mountain to climb, but more kind of a park to walk through. Play with it and be curious and really just enjoy yourself because if it's one more thing that you need to check off in the day, it turns into a chore. And I don't want people to think about this like a chore because there's so many other rules that we have as adults. I really want this to be looked at as play and fun within those like we talked about before, those minimum effective doses of safety parameters. I want people to feel like they can really just explore, but also have a good time with it because there's so much opportunity to gain more confidence and to feel better about who we are, no matter what our day looks like, that I would encourage anyone who's healthy enough and feeling good enough to be able to just see what's there for them. And it's ongoing. It's ongoing, ongoing. You can go as deep as I mean, I I can't wait to see what happens in my life another 5, 10, 15 years, because for me, every day is a new day with this practice. I would encourage people just to play. Always be safe. Less is more. Dip with a buddy or grab the app and find a community. Adherence goes up so much more high if you have a community with you. I find the support is one of the most important things. And I know that you feel that way too, Scott. Support and community is really, really important. Just find a group or find a buddy online or in person. Have some fun with it. Well, I'm super grateful that we were connected and a few times that we've had a chance to interact. It's been really special and a real pleasure. And I'm just grateful that we've had a chance to connect. And I'm really glad you took the time to talk to me. I'm just really grateful that you're helping bring this information so that people can consider it to be one more thing that they could explore and try. I'm looking forward to getting feedback from people too after they start practicing because we all want to help everyone feel better about their lives today and not have to wait five years from now for everything to be perfect before we can start enjoying ourselves. 